Hello everyone. Today we have Naomi Sadar. She's a truly remarkable individual whose accomplishments span multiple disciplines and decades. After earning her distinguished PhD in classics several decades ago, Naomi made a bold switch from switching ancient human languages to mastering the intricacies of computer languages. Since 2001, she has been a critical figure in the world of Python, demonstrating her exceptional talent by administering servers and developing large database web application in various contexts. Naomi's expertise in Python is unmatched, encompassing everything from web applications and API to data wrangling. Naomi is the author of the Quick Python book and the Explore Python Fundamental Project series. Naomi's contributions to Python community has been widely recognized and celebrated. As an elected fellow of prestigious Python Software Foundation, she has served as an esteemed chair of its board of directors. Additionally, Naomi is an accomplished international speaker, inspiring audiences worldwide with her insights on Python community as well as on inclusion and diversity in technology as a whole. Nami's work and dedication to her craft made her a true leader and an inspiration to all who strive for excellence. Nami, welcome to Be Curious with Srishti. It's an honor to be your host, and I'm looking forward to learn from you. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's my pleasure. Okay, so my first question to you is, what made you switch from ancient human languages to computer languages? Well, that didn't happen overnight, as you might expect. In the late 80s, I was teaching ancient Greek and Latin in Athens, Greece, and we bought an Apple IIc computer. Uh, I always like to tell the stories about it because it had a little ROM chip that would switch from Roman characters to Greek characters, and in the heat, it would get a little flaky and it would kind of switch back and forth at random. So it was kind of a, a an, an odd little machine, but I learned to program on that. And then later when I returned to the States, I was still teaching Latin at a school, but it turned out that we had a lot of computer problems that no one else was willing to tackle. So when I started fixing those, the headmaster of the school decided that he could find another Latin teacher, but he really needed somebody to work on the computer stuff. So I taught programming. I ended up managing the digital phone system. It was it was kind of a bunch of stuff and anything that involved technology sort of ended up under me for a while. That's an awesome story. So when I remember about my first experience with programming, it used to be I struggled initially, but slowly I started loving it. And that's the reason why I'm a software engineer. When things work and even when things are not working and I end up solving a problem after some time, that feeling of success is like mm -hmm. beautiful. And I always strive for that. Alan Kay, creator of Smalltalk and, and many other wonderful things in, in an interview years ago said that basically for those of us who, who do things like this, we delight in figuring out complicated things. And that's probably true. I'm also a programmer and I'm a huge fan of Python myself. And uh, I've worked with multiple languages, but my favorite uh, working language or like environment is Python. And uh, I love it. So I want to know what motivated you to stay with Python for so many years? Like it's, I think, more than, I don't that's, know, 20 that's years. That's a good question. It's, it's now been, um, what? 
22 years, I guess. Certainly, there was a point, maybe 15 years ago, something like that, where I was wondering when the next interesting language would come along. I was I was comfortable with Python, but I assumed at that time that there would be something else, some new shiny thing that would come along and get my attention, and that I would probably move on to that. And that never happened, I think, for a few reasons. For one thing, I suppose, uh, as I became more involved with the Python community, that was a motivator to stay because it was a wonderful community. It always has been. Then I think the other thing actually is the design of Python itself. I've said this before, but uh, Guido doesn't really get enough credit for being an artist. I don't know that Guido in creating the language thought of himself as an artist. I think he does not think of himself as an artist to this day, but uh, there is an aesthetic quality to Python that I find very satisfying and many of us do. As I looked at other languages, okay, so Ruby is designed for programmers to have fun, but there are things that it's like, no, I don't know. And every time I've looked at other languages and I've worked in other languages as well, uh, C, C++, Java, PHP, things like that. I end up finding myself missing that kind of, as I say, aesthetic of Python. So I think that's why I'm here for life. So I worked in a startup and then like I got an opportunity to work at Google. That was like one of my, like it's a dream company for me. So it was a big achievement. When I switched there, then I had to switch my language as well. So it was C++ there. And I love C++, obviously. It's it's an awesome language. But then I tend to miss Python at, at times. Like I also feel that Python is like beautiful. You can do stuff in a single line of code and uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, I agree. So my next question is you have served as board of directors of Python Software Foundation. That's a very prestigious role. So how did you get that opportunity? Well, the Python Software Foundation, of course, has been around for now over 20 years, meant to preserve the intellectual property of the language and also to, to create a global community. And I have been involved in PSF activities since pretty much the beginning of my involvement with with Python. I think I was prompted to run for the board of directors. I mean, it's an elected position. People run for it. I was prompted to run because some other people in the community encouraged me to do so. I happened in 2015 to be elected to the board and then served as vice chair. And then I served as chair of the board for three years until I I stepped aside in in 2020. It was an election, but I mean, you know, we have those elections every year, and I think there are people, particularly maybe people from other other parts of the world, other than North America and Northern Europe, who are wondering how it is you can possibly get there. For me, I think the the key was that I was actually involved in a couple of different countries. So I, I had worked in PyCon US, but at the time I was elected, I was actually living in London and I, you know, had become a member of the EuroPython Society and things like that. So I think that, you know, to answer that question of how did you get elected? I think it was because I actually had started to to know people and and be known 
known by people in more than just one place. And uh, so I think that was what actually did it for me. I don't know. That's a nice perspective. When you were elected as the board of directors of Python Software Foundation, what was your primary role? What was your roles and responsibilities? As vice chair, I sort of supported the chair and, and would, would fill in when they were unable to hold meetings. As chair of the Python Software Foundation, there were a couple of things I did. I sort of worked as the day-to-day -day partner of the executive director of the foundation. So in terms of the practicalities, it was kind of a position that was between the board, which is supposed to decide strategy, and the staff, which is supposed to get things done day to day. I was one of the links between those two in trying to get that to work. My focus in my time there, there were two things that I was interested in when I ran, and, and they were a theme throughout my time there. One of them was to help the PSF into a mature organization, even though it was, was 15 years old at the time. It did not have a whole lot of policies and staff and things like that. So a lot of focus was set on just helping the PSF mature into, well, a world-class organization. When I started, we had one full-time employee and a couple of part-time employees. Now, of course, they, they have several full-time employees and, and are expanding. But it was in setting the groundwork and trying to establish that, that was probably the thing that I did most. The other interest area for me was in trying to make the PSF truly more inclusive and diverse. And we did make progress there, clearly, but it's also one of those things that I think is, in a way, always frustrating because you look at all of the things that are yet to be done and it's hard to keep in mind the things that you did. But uh, we did increase support for grants across the world so that South America, Africa in, and, and Asia started to get more of their due in terms of, of support and recognition. That work, as I say, continues. I, I wish we had done more, but we did do what we could. How was the process of making the PSF more mature organization? Like, what was the journey? What steps did you take? It's largely a matter of education in a way. We're used to starting small communities and working there and everybody can kind of see what happens and they can have an impact and whatever. When you get to have a large you know, a global organization that is, is meant to be doing some rather long-term, large-scope things, then it's a lot harder for people to see that they can't just step in and say, hey, we need to do this now. You, you can't do things now. It's sort of, I think people came to think of it, it's kind of the difference between having maybe a small boat and an ocean liner. You cannot turn the ocean liner right away. You need to actually think about what you're doing. So a large part of it was just in educating the other board members, but in also in terms of trying to educate the community. So it was it was something that I spoke about when I went to speak and stuff like that too. So I have like listened to your few of your uh, talks, and all of them are like very inspirational. Thank you. So I will get back to like your talks as well as about community maybe in the future. But I want to know more about the quick uh, Python book. So what was your motivation? Uh, when you wrote that book? 
as an educator, which which I was for a while, and and, and giving a lot of talks, I was interested in in communicating about Python to the world. I had actually taken part in another book project for a different publisher that. Uh, let's just say there were creative differences. It ended up not going anywhere with me after a certain amount of time. But then I was approached to do the Quick Python book, and it was, I think, partly career development. I suppose uh, I had no illusions that I would get rich. One does not, in general, get rich writing tech books or any books. I think it's always the the rare exception that does that. But. I thought it would be a good process to go through for me, and it's also it, it's a good career thing as well. In that that having a book as a credit is something that people do pay attention to, and you know, obviously, I was aware of that. So those were a couple of things. It was not meant to be a huge project, but those projects always get bigger than you think. So yeah, writing a book is not a trivial undertaking. That is that is true. I've heard this from like many people. Like when I listen to podcasts, I find people saying that writing a book is a big, big process and it's a hard thing to do. Being able to write a book and publish it is a big deal. Basically, it is a hard process. I think the key in writing a book is to make sure that you have some time available. It doesn't need to be a full time thing, but you need to be able to set aside some time. And then, for me at least, I found the important thing was to try to do something every day, whether it was just maybe going back and rereading and revising the you know the past bit of writing, or it was doing something new, but just trying to have the discipline so that you could do at least a little bit every day. Uh, was, yeah. That's that's kind of the way that I approach it. Okay, yeah. So that actually makes sense. So even I am trying to become a writer. I wouldn't say that I try to write ev- something every day, and uh, that's how like I post articles on Medium. And I, in the long run, I also want to become a writer. That's like my goal. I want to write a book. So I keep on learning every day, new things. Mm-hmm. Like every year adds to my learning, and I think I can create something out of it. So that's like a yeah. goal I want to reach there. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. I I think with that approach, I think you will get there. Yeah. Cool. So the next question you already mentioned that you have been part of like multiple communities, and the, one of the biggest community is obviously Python. So. I want to learn from you. Like, how do you create or build a community from scratch, and how do you keep it alive? Like, I have seen multiple communities being created, and uh, then they they don't stay alive. On the other side, like Python has been for so long, right. and so I think, and this is kind of based on where I've seen things go right and where I've seen things go wrong. I think that starting a community and keeping it alive, they're kind of at least two different stages there. So in starting a community, you need one or two or three people who really want this thing to go so that they will will sort of keep working on it even when it looks like no one is around. So uh, for example, I started a, a Linux user group in the early 2000s. And the key there was to keep on having meetings, even if only two or three people showed up, you need to keep on doing it for a while. You need to have somebody who won't give up. But then once you actually do have something going, this is the hard part, I think. I think this is the part 
where a lot of people go wrong is that you need to then be very intentional about bringing people in and sharing the the responsibilities. So I think that if you have just a uh, one person who does all of the work or one person who is the center of everything, uh, that can be fine for a long time until for some reason that person can't or won't do it anymore. Maybe they move away, maybe they just you know, it's health, maybe they just don't want to do it anymore, then the rest of that community is unprepared and usually unable to take over. So that, that I think is, is the other thing is that you need to be sure that people are brought in and given a chance to also, you know, contribute in key ways. That's why basically, I don't know, for the past 15 years or so, um, my policy has been if I start something in a community, whether it's something in PyCon or whatever it might be, I try to step away from it after two or three years and let other people do it. And most of those things have continued that way. So I think that that is not a bad idea. Your community is just not meant to be, okay, that will happen. But I think actually giving other people a chance to take over is unappreciated by many. This is like one of the best insights I've got for building a community. So obviously like one person army at times like it's not scalable as well as like when the person has to mm -hmm. have to leave for some reason then there's a void which can't get filled and this is like a known thing but when you are saying it it makes perfect sense and it fits in and this is like a one of the best insights i've got for building community okay. thank you so much for that so now, like, we're seeing a lot of transition in the software inter industry. The most re recent is ChatGPT and mm -hmm. uh, AI. But uh, I want to know from you, like, from your perspective, what is the future of the software industry? Yeah, what's the future of Python? The software industry, as you allude with things like ChatGPT, is is clearly undergoing some change. I mean, right now, as ChatGPT exists and all of that, I am skeptical that it is going to solve a lot of problems. I think that the kind of underlying notion that if you just put all of existing knowledge in a blender, you will somehow get new knowledge out of it, is maybe not the way that we have created knowledge in the past. So I, I'm skeptical, honestly. That said, I think that we are certainly near if we're not at a point where where software can create other software what does that mean for our industry well um i think it means for one thing that people who are in sort of medium low level programming because it's a good job and that's it are probably going to be under a lot of pressure it's going to be the case that you know, what I kind of think of as commodity programmers, what, you know, in the business they call a resource. Can you put a resource on that? That sort of faceless generic programmer, that probably is going to be under a lot of pressure from automation. Those jobs may not be around for a long time. So, and this has been part of the industry forever. I, I have had a good friend who uh, in in the early 2000s, got stuck in a legacy system and he did not see it coming. He ended up losing his job and, you know, 
that was it. So that sort of thing, I think, will become a problem. Where where I think we're going to see an amazing amount of growth, honestly, is in verification of systems, testing of systems, debugging of systems. If we have machines writing code, they're going to write much, much, much more code than we're used to generating. And it is therefore going to have, I'm sorry, many, many, many more bugs that are going to be much harder to detect. All of that is going to be a huge problem for us to solve. And the people who will be solving it probably will be able to write their own ticket in terms of, of what they can get. So there are many interesting possibilities there. For Python, Python, I think, is still kind of getting used to the notion that it's one of the top three languages in the world. Many of us old timers who can remember the old days when there weren't that many Python programmers are still getting used to that notion. And I think certainly in the medium term, that will continue, say, five years out. I would be surprised if it's not still in a dominant position. The work that is being done from, from many directions in terms of improving Python's performance is encouraging. I know I said in a keynote in, in 2017 that really what we needed to do was fix the performance problem. And I figured that sooner or later, people would get to the point where they would all start working on different solutions and we would make progress. And, and in fact, uh, okay, that wasn't a hard prediction to make, honestly. But in fact, that's what's happening now is that we have a, a great push for performance from the core development team. Microsoft and others are behind that. But we're also seeing all sorts of other approaches, things that maybe aren't exactly C Python, but are, are Python based or similar to Python or things like that. All of that work going on now, I think, will over the course of the next five years mean that we have a, a much faster Python than we did before. So we will see. But th those are the two things that I, I can kind of think of off the top of my head. Okay. That's a very good insight, especially uh, the one which you mentioned about software being automated, like uh, software can generate, uh, create another software. And then where people can find themselves in future is on verification of systems, testing and debugging. That's like a good direction where software engineers can take themselves in the coming future. So that's a very good insight. Thank you for that. And also if we get high, very good performing Python software, then it will be awesome. Like one of the best things. Yeah. So my next question, you have been keynote speaker in so many conferences, like I, when I search your name, I find so many talks and everything. And one of my favorite is like when I attended PyCon during the pandemic, you had a speech in PyCon India, uh, inclusion and community in the face of crisis. It was a beautiful talk and it inspired me at m multiple levels. So I see that most of your talks have some underlying message. And what is the process of you creating uh, keynote speeches and like what's your thought process and how do you create your speeches yeah of course i always start by asking if there is something that that the conference wants to be discussed and sometimes there is i think maybe surprisingly many times they really don't have much of a specific idea of what they want i also consider things that I want to say, things that I have been looking at, thinking about that, that I think are, are interesting. 
And then finally, I think I also think about what needs to be said, what, what the audience might need to hear. So, for example, my thinking in terms of the talk that you refer to, inclusion and community in, in the face of crisis, was sort of in the face of, I don't know, what I saw as a lot of, of I don't know, people feeling helpless. And it seemed to me that, that you know, it was, it was the thing that people needed to hear was a, a call to action, a call to kind of take what steps they could to to face to face what was going on so that's you know those are the things that i think about it it in general i mean i suppose i can tell you every time i give one of these i just like i don't know it's like are people just going to go what but in general it seems to have been yeah well received so i'm, I'm happy about that that's nice i like all of us speeches are like inspiring and uh, it feels good listening to it and it, when i got this opportunity to interview you i started like revisiting and uh, it made me feel so nice also i want to say like being at your level when you say something when you try to make it has so much influence and it affects people life in a positive way which, which is a very nice thing i hope so uh, yeah i mean i really like your talk so oh thank yeah. you so from your talks itself like uh, you you are very passionate about being inclusive and building an inclusive community you also mentioned in like uh, for python software foundation your job around that that you mentioned that you wanted to build inclusive community so i want to say uh, like i want to ask what are the few steps an individual can take to become inclusive in their day-to-day -day life? So I think there are a couple of things. I think one thing that that is important at an individual level is for people to, to be aware that we all have unconscious biases against various people. And I think we need to be pretty active, pretty intentional in, in examining those and in trying to, to work against those. And that's something certainly that as somebody growing up in, in, the, in, in the 1960s, in the middle of, of the United States, I, as I look back, I was kind of awash in a sea of racism and homophobia and and all sorts of things like that. Those those biases were everywhere; they were unquestioned. And so, you know, you you really kind of need to a, a, examine your assumptions when you meet somebody. How are you reacting to them? I uh, what 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 drives that? And uh, you know, it's everybody, every culture, every nation has those things. They're different, but everybody has them. So to kind of be aware and examine that. And I think flowing from that, part of that uh, is then also building a, a, a network, uh, maybe, not, maybe not a super formal network, but knowing people who are different than you are and not shying away from that, but embracing uh, that opportunity to get to know people who are from different countries, different religions, different whatever it might be. Uh, I think that that's, that's the other thing on a personal level. I think it actually affects, for example, things like hiring in companies. If all of the people who are doing the hiring only know one kind of person, 
then they're not likely to even know about the other people. Or if they are, they're likely to assume they can't do the job or, or whatever it might be. So I've managed to hire, even as a manager, different people from different places, uh, different races, different different whatever, and genders, sexualities, all of that. It's been much easier for me because I do actually happen to know a lot of people who are quite different. And I, I delight in that, as a matter of fact. So two questions from that. How do you manage to work with so many people? That's the first question. And the second, like, how do you figure out that you are having an unconscious bias? So what happens is you have grown in a certain culture, then it feels like it's a normal thing. So how mm -hmm. do you like, challenge those unconscious bias biases? And yeah, so like both the questions. Well, I think these days it's actually easy to find people with different opinions on on online and and things like that i think maybe it's it's easiest to to look around and 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 maybe there are some things that have been called attention to uh that you can start with i mean maybe it's you know who knows what it might be it might be um age discrimination it might be racial things in the united states for example uh if someone is not examining their opinions towards people of other races it must be because they don't want to because this has been in the news it's not as though it's it's an unknown thing and similarly maybe with religious differences i mean there are things so if you if you just think about so who in in your society is the target of everybody saying, oh, those people are just, those are the ones that you should look at because almost certainly that is an unfair bias. Uh, okay. Anytime you get a, a bunch of people saying, oh no, clearly this group of people must have something wrong with them. That's where that's I would start. A, that's a good idea. Thank you for that. I will follow these in my life. And <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to work as well as find new people around me and maybe I would try to be my best in that. Yeah, that's all we can do. Yeah. So I want to ask, you have been in uh, leadership roles in multiple places. You know what it means to be a leader. So I want to learn from you. What does it take to be a leader? I, from my point of view, and I'm, I'm, I, I need to be clear, nobody is asking me to write a book on leadership. But for me, it has always been important to be to be honest and to be authentic. In, in many situations, maybe a leader cannot share everything with everyone. There are all sorts of reasons why that might be the case, but uh, to be as honest as you can be and to be honest when you can't tell somebody something. I think this is, I go back to my days when I was a teacher and I was teaching teenagers. And the mistake I saw adults make with teenagers most often was that they would give the wrong reasons. You can't do this because whatever. And the whatever was always a made up reason rather than telling the truth. That's always the worst thing you can do because then people start fighting with that wrong reason and it, it just, it, it goes bad from there. So I always try to be as honest as I can be or I'd be honest that I can't say if I can't say. So that's that's certainly one thing. And I think the other thing is just trying to be as as kind as possible to the people that you work with. I have yet to see being uh, harsh with people get better results than being kind to people. In fact, usually if you are kind to people, 
when you most need that help and you don't even expect it, then is when they will be there to to return the favor. That's, that's a very powerful thing. So this is clearly not going to get much traction in, 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 a, in a top level boardroom, I don't suppose. I know in, in many businesses when I have, have, have spoken this way and acted this way, people go, oh, but you're a teacher, whatever, they, they dismiss it. But in my experience, it is it is what works for me. So good. I have not been in a leadership role, but like all the things you said, when I listen to a leader, like in my organization or anywhere else, people who uh, are like very honest and uh, like tell the truth, obviously when they can't, uh, if they say they cannot because there are restrictions, that's the most satisfying thing uh, to listen to. And also, yeah, being kind is like, one of my favorite things as well. So I want to ask one more thing. Look, you are a leader. So you, you have been running multiple organizations. How do you make people get the work done? Like being kind, people might want to do something. So that scenario is also there, right? Right. Well, that's where the, the honest part comes in, I'm afraid. I mean, you can tell somebody that they are not that they are not doing what needs to be done and without being a jerk about it. And you can, I mean, it is difficult, but you can even if you need to, to dismiss somebody, you can do that kindly, but do it honestly. You are not doing this. We need you to do this. We have asked you to do this. You're not doing this. I'm afraid okay. you're not going to be here. I mean, no, you know, neither of those things says that you you have to to um, give in to whatever to people not doing what they want. I, I think in general, people who are respected and treated well in general will try to do what they're supposed to. I have known maybe one or two exceptions in my time. But in general, when people are are given that 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 sort of ownership and trust to do it, in general, they try to. Uh, okay. Sometimes they can't. Sometimes the relationship still needs to end. But I have remained friends with the vast majority of the people who have worked with me. So yeah, I think that still works, even when in some cases I've had to say they have to leave. Okay, that's beautiful. Uh, I mean, that's a very nice perspective. So two more questions on leadership. From your point of view, what's the most important thing when you are in a leadership position? And then, like, how do you reach that level? Like, being a leader is a very difficult position to reach. For people like me, I, like, just aspire, like, maybe 10 years down the line, I would be director of certain company or something. So what are your thoughts of how um, people can reach yeah, well, so I mean, what's important, I think, is for me, it's important to have a, a sense of clarity in terms of what it is you're trying to achieve, what it is the group that you're leading, organization, business, whatever it might be, is trying to achieve. Having that sense of what it is you're doing, you can call it mission or whatever you will, but that that is, I think, very important. If you don't have that, then it's really very difficult to to get anywhere. In terms of how do you reach that level? I mean, I, I think it's sort of, it kind of comes in, in terms of step by step. So, you know, uh, you can certainly take ownership and leadership, even if you are an individual report, you can, you, there are ways, always ways that you can, can improve and contribute beyond just 
your little bit of work, whether it's helping people organize, whether it's giving other people help, but whatever it might be, there are ways that you can be a leader. And usually that that will lead to then maybe more formal things because I think pretty much all organizations feel a shortage of leadership. So if you're there providing that, it's likely that that will happen. If for some reason what you do is not recognized, it may be that you're in a place where, you know, biases and prejudice are keeping you from doing that. Then maybe your choice is to go look for another place that will not have those biases. But in general, I think it, it's just that sort of day-to-day -day helping move whatever it is you're doing forward in whatever way you can is, is kind of the first step. And then that builds. I mean, it's kind of also, I suppose, being a little bit of a willingness to put yourself out there in terms of being willing to do some of those things that, that not everybody does. So, yeah. That's a very good insight again. So, like, uh, helping uh, helping things move forward and, like, willingness to do something which, uh, which others don't want to do. I mean, yeah, th that's how we can stand out and that's how we can get recognition. So, yeah, that's a very good insight. Thank you for uh, for that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Cool. So now I want to get to some personal questions, like to know you more as a person, a bit about your childhood. Like, how was you as a child? So I was the the youngest of three, and I was like ten years younger than than my older brothers. So I was sort of on my own a lot. Um, but I always had a fascination with how things work. And, and fortunately, I suppose my father was very tolerant of me trying to take things apart and figure out how they work. I, it was many years before I managed to put anything back together, mind you. I, I think that was always kind of a feature of me as a child. I mean, when, when we were, I think, 10 or 11, a bunch of us got together and uh, we formed an astronomy club. So we would go out observing and then we made our own telescopes and, and, and things like that. So through my school years, that was sort of an important thing that was, you know, I, when everybody was kind of obsessed with space Anyhow, that was the first space race and all of that. But uh, we did a lot of a lot of things like that. So those sorts of things, curiosity, I think, was always a, a big part of, of what I did as a child. Yeah. So I remember me building a water heater out of a metal plate. And I was ah. so... <laughs> yeah, that was the first, <laughs> first project you do as a kid. And mm -hmm. I was so excited. So I read that in a book and I just um, built it. And I was so excited that I like showed it to each and every teacher in my school. And like everyone was like so happy and appreciated it. Yeah. It, it, it is the most powerful thing in the world for a child to be able to make something that does something. You know, not just a model, not just a toy, but it does something that is really yeah. important. So like all those small, small science projects, are very attractive and interesting and yeah yeah so tell me like a pivotal movement that help have helped you move to the next level in your career or in your life well there are you know there there many of them of course i mean it's i i think that many things that i i suppose were, were milestones and when i was 16 and 17 years old i learned how to fly 
and I, you know, got my got a my pilot's license on my 17th birthday. I didn't actually fly much after that, but it was the whole process of learning something so so difficult and 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 all the whole thing of getting the license and all of that you know actually completing that difficult thing i think was really important list and i think in general those are the things that that form people i don't know at least for me that's been the case i mean um many years ago i i ran several marathons and it's it's again the same process carrying through on some sort of big project uh, and and actually, then carrying that through is is really an important thing uh, for for people. And uh, then I suppose finally, when I left uh, the education world to go off and be more just a a, a pure Python person, was the most recent one. And that certainly was um, the start of of many adventures as well. Nice. So like the idea of like picking up a huge task at hand. Mm -hmm. Like being able to finish it is a very nice, like a good thing. I just wanted to mention, like I had fallen down and then uh, I broke a ligament of my knee and I was not able to walk. So then uh, after a few days, like it felt like I might not be the same person again. I might not be able to walk, run, jump and mm -hmm. all those things again. And that felt like a big task. But when I started training and uh, I was able to like do everything yeah. again, it, it felt good. And it actually made me grow as a human being. So that's, mm -hmm. and uh, when you mentioned about learning how to fly and being able to get the license, that's a big, big, huge thing. And that's nice. So now tell me about a lowest point of, of your life and how did you step back up from there um well i mean i suppose really the the lowest point of my life came um when um i sort of finally had to come to terms with being a transgender person uh and you know this is a case where for 50 years i had played the role of being somebody i wasn't and it was getting to the point where I was thinking maybe if I could just last until I died, it'd be all right. I mean, that's, that's so, you know, facing that and deciding that the time had come to sort of be completely honest with myself and the world about who I was, that, that I think was probably the most difficult point in my life. And it, it really came down to a decision that I was I was going to be honest and tell the truth no matter what, period. Uh, and it actually, not not that being an out transgender person is easy, but actually uh, that was, I think, a point where um, many things in, in my life got much better. Yeah. That's, that's a very hard thing. So I, obviously I cannot compare the strength you had uh, taken to talk about yourself and being honest. Like it takes a lot of effort uh, to be honest and uh, to come out in the world. And I want to like just say that I was laid off from Google and I was not able to accept that fact. And like somehow I'm related, re relating to your story in a different way, obviously. Mm -hmm your journey and your story is different and your struggles are different uh, being able to like speak up honestly about 
about my layoff yeah. was one way of making myself, unless I tell it to everyone in the world, I wouldn't be able to face it and accept it myself. So after one week of yeah, like right, full, right. full depression and sadness and everything, I thought like I'll just post it in LinkedIn. Everyone will know about it. Then I don't have to hide it from anybody. And if, absolutely, if, if new companies come and ask like why you're looking for a new job, I can just say honestly. And and to my surprise, like people accepted it. Like companies accepted, and they were happy to interview me. And I like to me, I was feeling that uh, the layoff is a black mark in my career. But actually, it's a good thing. I I've grown from it, and like there were so many people who wanted to hire me. So it's a. I mean, I realized uh, that. Yeah, even without Google, I am going to do well in my career. So, and obviously, I also want to thank you to like join this podcast. I was not expecting you to join. I was just like cold messaging, and I was surprised that you you were happy to. <laughs> well, I surprise people all the time, I guess. This is, this is awesome. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. So the my next question: What qualities or thought process you think has worked in your life? Uh, I think that basically I am a more or less optimistic person. And I think that helps. But I think it's also combined with the fact that I'm I'm actually a fairly realistic person. So for me, it's it's kind of that combination. What they've found in studying resiliency over the years is that people who are wildly unrealistically optimistic tend not to do very well because, well, it's unrealistic, so they always end up crashing into reality at some point, and that, that doesn't go well. But people who are willing to look at a situation realistically and say, okay, but what can I do right now to make things a little bit better? tend to have maybe the most resiliency. I can't claim that I de developed that necessarily deliberately. I think I have over the years started to foster that. I think originally I, I credit uh, one of my grandmothers was that way and she was a very important person for me. I think that that is the thing I would say that actually is, is maybe in a, in a grand sense helpful to people almost no matter what they do. That's a good idea. Optimistic plus realistic. Yeah. So like, how do you figure out that this is optimism and how how to bring that optimism to the real world? Like, Well, I mean, I think it's, it is true. It has been observed that, you know, you can have an optimist and a pessimist look at exactly the same thing and see it completely differently. Uh, that's, that's certainly true. I don't know. I mean, I think I think I can tell you in all of my years that I have seen that things are almost never quite as bad as they seem. So that's one thing. I think in terms of combining realism and optimism, I mentioned I ran marathons. Uh, mm -hmm. People who run very long distances, some of them have this saying that I love, which is nothing ever always gets worse. And by the time you untangle it, what that means is no matter how bad you feel now, if you can just hold on for a little bit, you probably won't feel quite as bad another mile down the trail or, or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I've seen that in my life through experience. There are some people that I, that cannot be convinced. I know I have tried, but it is true. So, I mean, the idea of if you're running a marathon 
and no matter how bad you're feeling at that point of time and like after you run one mile that's like one way of thinking it things will be better in the future and even if i'm feeling bad i'm able to at least accomplish something better out of it that's a nice idea and i think we can especially me i can like keep on adding more thoughts in this direction and i think it will help me as well thank you so so much for that okay, okay. so now we are coming to an end of our podcast and i want to like listen to your final thoughts for the young generation so people who are just starting their career and like and they are going to grow their career to become like different people in their journey so yeah i would like to know your thoughts around that my advice for for people starting out is well a couple of things i mean i think that you should not be afraid to trust yourself if something seems like it's really wrong for you and you thought about it and it still seems really wrong for you i wouldn't listen to other people i would listen to you you know listen to yourself on that going along with that you know don't don't be afraid to to reinvent yourself i mean okay so maybe from the time you were small you thought you were going to be oh i don't know um a doctor or something and then it turns out that no that's really not right for you you know don't don't become trapped there it's never too late to sort of step back and say no no actually i want to do something else i mean i think the realist part of me has to say of course think about it and make sure you're doing it as in a reasonable way as possible don't just go jumping off a cliff but don't be afraid to to take some some calculated risks and and reinvent yourself because i think that's quite often where the rewards in life lie and that's a, a very nice perspective thank you this comes to an end of a podcast with naomi and thank you so much naomi for joining okay. me again pleasure yeah